0: right, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Big Questions with Big John. I'm your host, Big John. And today, I am thrilled to have one of my favorite all-time people that I grew up listening to and in a lot of ways inspired me to get into radio myself along uh, with his crew. We'll talk about that later. But right now, I want to introduce none other than the great Jackie, the joke man martling. Jackie, how are you doing today?
1: I am doing great. It's uh, threatening to rain here, but I already took my nice long swim. I live right on Long Island Sound, and I wake up every day with a nice long swim, and I don't feel a day over 75.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, Jackie, I'm glad you said that. Actually, I'm from Huntington, so uh, we're not too far apart from each other. Uh, A couple of Long Island guys, and uh, I'm glad to hear that you're in great shape. You still go out for your swim, uh, and you're right. You don't. I didn't say so I didn't
1: say I was in great shape. I said I go, you know, with three broken arms and a and a and no ears. You can swim, you know. But yeah, I'm, in, I'm. You know, I could stand to lose, you know, twenty or forty or sixty pounds. But aside from that, I'm fine. You know, you know I'm still going up and doing shows for an hour and a half and kicking ass. So as long as I can still do that, that's all I care about.
0: You know. Well, that's the key, right? Like you could still move around. You could still do uh what you. Uh, enjoy doing, right? Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, let's get into it. You know, I was I was reading up a little bit on you before we start this show. I mean, I was trying to avoid making this all about your time on the Howard Stern show, which I'm sure we'll touch on. But uh, a lot of things I found interesting for you. First of all, one of the things I noticed is uh, you went to Michigan State and got a degree in uh, mechanical engineering. Was it? Yeah. Yeah, which so, is
1: uh, no small accomplishment for a uh, pot smoking drunk, but I did it, <laughs> you know. And I was—I was, I gonna... w- was very determined when I when I right. went to college. I was determined that I had no intention of ever being an engineer. I had no idea what I was going to do. It was the late '60s. I became, you know, a very hippie hippie. But I knew I was never going to get a job, especially as an engineer. You know, I, I just wasn't a normal guy. But I knew if I didn't take a really difficult major, I would wind up drinking and flunking out of college. So I took a difficult major, which ate up so much time between mm. you know, atomic physics and chemistry and mechanics. You had to work your ass off. And it took me five years. And then it took me another two years to get out of the college town because I was I wasn't done playing rock and roll and drinking. so. Uh, but I, in the long run, I wound up using my diploma, uh, my BS 1971 from Michigan State as a mechanical engineer. I wound up using my diploma to, to roll pot, <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> which, you know, which is a funny joke, but it's also <laughs> absolutely true. <laughs>
0: well, you know, Jackie, I always found it fascinating because, you know, typically people will say like, Hey, if you're from the type of personality who goes out and gets an engineering degree, or, or you know, like a chemistry degree, or something like that, that it almost prevents you from having a sense of humor. You know that you got to be serious all the time. That,
1: that is, that is uh, pathetically incorrect. I know. You know, you immediately think of a guy with a pocket protector and all his pens and pencils. Right. But uh, engineering was so much mathematics. And nobody is more into jokes and, well, see, I'm not a comedian. I'm a, I'm a joke teller mm. and also a musician. And music and jokes are all so mathematical. Everything about music is so mathematical. And the jokes, the jokes are actually small little problems. It's like high school geometry where you're given a certain amount of information and it leads to the end. Like the smartest people in the world are are huge fans of dirty jokes i I still email jo- uh, jokes back and forth with Willie Nelson. I used to go on stage with Les Paul in Manhattan who invented the electric guitar, you know depending on who you talk to, but nobody loved my filthy jokes more than him and I actually had a couple of meetings with Jeffrey Epstein before mm. of course before the whole thing happened because he was such a huge fan of jokes. And uh, I didn't know how how crazed he was. And I was having dinner with him, uh, with a bunch of guys, including Woody Allen. And then he asked me to come back. And we went there. I went there and I'm telling him dirty jokes and he's rolling. And he said to me, Jackie, tomorrow night I'm going to Harvard because I give Harvard millions of dollars every year. And I'm going to see Noam Chomsky deliver a speech because I give Noam Chomsky Millions of dollars every year. And after his speech, we're going to go into the dressing room and we're going to tell dirty jokes. <laughs> and I'm going to be using some of the jokes you're telling me tonight. Everybody. You know who loved dirty jokes more than anybody was Albert Einstein. Oh,
0: uh, well, Who, I would heard, ever, who uh, Did you know that? I I heard he was like a poon hound and stuff. I didn't know that he was necessary, but it makes sense, he, I guess. Well, they go hand in hand. His
1: favorite dirty joke was. My dick isn't that big, but I love every foot of it. (laughs) Which is, when I heard that, I was so excited. It was, and I I heard it from the, from uh, two degrees of separation, so it's inaccurate. And when I heard that, I didn't know yet that he was a pussy hound. Mm. And then, you know, it all it all fills in. But yeah, no, some. You know, some guys are very straight laced, but that's just like saying school teachers. Some school teachers are the wildest people in the world, and others are very straight laced. It, it it really comes down to the person. Mm. But the jokes jokes are so universal, and you'd be surprised. You know, I I did a, a charity show. My good friend uh, Sid Mandelbaum has a great charity called Rock and Wrap It Up, and they collect food from all kinds of places. They used to start. They started off getting food from big rock concerts but now they get the food that's left over at ball games and football games and hockey i mean the guy's amazing and uh he he just you know he just loves the dirty jokes but nobody loves the dirty jokes more than the vets that he takes care of he, he feeds all these vets and i do his, his uh charity golf outing and one outing about uh, five or ten years ago he says listen there's a four-star general that's going to be here, and he's with his wife. And I don't, you know, I'm not sure. I said, "Listen, relax." So I went up after dinner and told all my filthy jokes, and the place rolled. And then I went and sat with the general, and his wife started telling me dick jokes. <laughs> you know, that's that's just how it works. You know, jokes are absolutely leveler. Everybody loves them. You know.
0: Well, so a, they a, them. a good joke, obviously it gets you off on the right foot with so many people. I mean, that's why having a sense of humor helps you in business. Even in like your boring day-to-day, I found that being able to, to turn a good joke is, is always a, a, a positive. Um, even, even just being a good audience, just being open mm. to
1: laughing. You know, a smile is the most disarming thing in the world, whether you're talking business, whether you're meeting a girl in a bar, whether you're on a first date, whether you're meeting your girlfriend's parents. You know, a sour look on your face or or a quizzical look, just the smallest smile just opens every door. Just opens every door.
0: And it's funny because I always remember you. I, you must really live that because I, every appearance I've ever seen you at, every stand-up gig, like you you've always got a smile on. You always seem like you you're you're always a happy guy. It seems like is that well, something that's, that's uh, true about that's you? A
1: little bit. That's a little bit of bullshit. You know, like yeah. of course okay. when I'm working, I'm really happy. And when I'm with people, I'm really happy. But I'm not, you know, I'm not, the, you know, I don't dance around the house with a big smile like, a, like an idiot. You know, like right. I got my share of problems. I got my share of major problems. But, you know, who wants to hear that? You know, you don't go up to a girl in a bar and say, hey, you want to know what's wrong in my life? You know, that's not, that's not how it works. Right. But yeah, I'm usually, when the cameras are rolling especially, but on stage or at an appearance or at a charity event, you know, I I'm not just putting it on. I'm really happy to be there cuz people are ready to laugh and ready to enjoy and it's nice to be invited and it's nice to be loved, you know. It's the same old thing,
0: you know. Yeah. Do you find that um in your in your time as a comedian, do you find that people are less open to being happy and being entertained with jokes now about the same or more? How would you how would I, you, you know rate what? that?
1: I I've just always gone under the assumption that People want to hear jokes. They want to hear my jokes and they want to laugh. And if they don't, fuck them. It's that simple. You know, <laughs>
0: Exactly. it's an okay. easy,
1: th- that's an easy thing to say because if you're up on stage and all of a sudden you see a bunch of people not laughing, you know, <clears throat> luckily that doesn't happen a lot anymore. But uh, is there hasn't been any great turn or tide of tide of people aren't as ready to laugh as they were because those kinds of people, I, I guess I just don't come in contact with. They're not, you know, if you go to see Jackie, the joke man, martling and you don't intend on laughing, who's the idiot, you know, you <laughs> exactly. know, you know yeah. I, I tell people, look, I got your money already. If you don't laugh, who's the idiot, you know, <laughs>
0: <Exactly. laughs> that's that right. simple. Right. Right? Yeah, no, you're, you're absolutely right. And I, I also, I, and again, forgive me if I'm projecting too much of my thinking here, but it seems to me like your type of humor as well, isn't subject to, the, the tides of politics or, or, or no, political correctness no, or anything like both, that, right? It,
1: it's it, it's evergreen. You know, right. some of my jokes are a little bit, I guess, hurtful to this person or that person. But, you know, this is life. Grow up. You know, um, you know, I take a shot at Polish people or I take a shot at Jewish people or I take a shot at fat people or I take a shot at black people or I take a shot at dwarfs. But like, you go on and on and on. You know, the Jewish people are laughing at the black jokes and the black jokes are <laughs> laughing at the dwarf jokes. Like it's just, and you know, and everybody climbs on marriage jokes. I mean, marriage jokes, divorce jokes, being old, farts, right. poop, kids, you know, <laughs> wise guys. It's just universally funny. And it'll always be universally funny because it always has been universally funny. If you look back, at there's joke books from the year twelve hundred. That are about the priests having sex with the altar boys and how the whole, the whole town's laughing at one guy's fart. I mean, this isn't from 1950. We're talking about the year 1200. I mean, right. nothing, nothing changes. You know, the first time a rock hit a caveman on the head and his wife laughed. You know, we were off to the races. It's that simple. You know, because it's a necessary function. You know, laughter's a very necessary function.
0: I agree with you, and and I I've always felt the same way. Like I felt like a there isn't a thing you can't make fun of, and there isn't a thing you shouldn't be able to make fun of. Uh, there's always going to be like the too soon's or whatever. Fair enough, but I'd rather have.
1: You, I, no, you got to draw a line, and you got to use your head. But for the most part, as far as a blanket, you know, the the bottom line of I, I would say all comedy but jokes in particular, if nobody gets hurt, there's no joke. That's why it's called a punchline. Whether it's a blonde joke or a married joke or a divorce joke or a fart joke, somebody in on some level, someone gets hurt. Someone mm-hmm. is the victim. That's why it's called a punchline. Right. And, you know, not not horribly, but there's got to be, a a victim or else there's no story. I mean, that's, it's, it's so deliciously simple that people don't realize it till you think about it. You know, it's also the same. I I hate the expression, that's an old joke Mm. because there is no such thing as an old joke because the jokes that went around in 1960 went around in 1940. I mean, I'm a student of this thing. Right. Every joke, as, as far as every joke and every person, if I tell a joke to a person and they've never heard it before, that's a new joke. If they have heard it before, that's an old joke. And that pertains to every joke with every person in every situation. And right. y- if you think about it, you know, people go, oh, that's old because they heard it a month ago. Meanwhile, the joke's been around since the year 1,200. <laughs> right. You know, or, you know, wow, that's a new one. And it's a joke I heard when I was in fifth grade. You know, like there's no such thing as old and new. You know, and, and, and people get a little baffled like that by that, you know. And people say, oh, Jackie tells old jokes. And then they go to see me. And and they laugh for an hour. And they say, God, I only heard one or two of those jokes before. I said, yeah, right. but they, they're all old. You know, I don't write my, I, I tell jokes. I've been collecting them since I was like, Five years old and there's always people that say oh but you don't write your jokes when you go to see hamlet and the people (laughs) get up on stage and do hamlet they didn't write that they're performing it and they're entertaining the hell out of you my idea is i'm gonna go up and not just entertain you i'm gonna make you laugh your balls off what are you gonna do say you didn't write that shit all right go go watch somebody that wrote every line and you're not gonna laugh once. Right. These are just things that I know made people laugh my entire life. I didn't become a comedian until I was thirty-one years old. I've been telling these jokes for decades already, and I know what works, and I know what punches people in the stomach and makes them throw up with laughter. <laughs> and I just took it on stage, and and that's just the way it is. You know, it's it's a it's a performance. You know.
0: Yeah. No. And there's, I, you know, it's funny because. Um... I think the first time I saw your stand up was uh, something that Red Fox hosted. It was called Dirty Dirty Jokes, I think.
1: Red Fox's Dirty Dirty Jokes.
0: You're right. <clears throat> and as a matter of fact, you were on with a with Robert Schimmel, uh a young Robert Dice play, I think.
1: To this day, Dice says that, that video is what got him noticed and got him launched. He's always yeah. said that. Yeah. It, I've, it, I've known him I knew him for years before that, you know.
0: Yeah. And even then, I remember some of the jokes that you uh, performed in that special. I think one of them I may have heard my father tell me when I was kid. Uh, when I was a kid, you know. Uh, and I
1: absolutely. Said, I mean, there are jokes, for, you know, that I learned on Long Island. I, you know, for all I know, I heard it from your father. You know <laughs> what I mean? Yeah. No. And they take so many different forms that every, every people say do you know this joke? And they'll start a joke and I'll say, you got to give me more. We're not far enough along. They'll say, did you hear the joke about the nun and the priest? Well, you better keep going because, you know, you've got just narrowed it down to about 6,000 jokes, you know.
0: Right, right. Well, Norm MacDonald used to say that, right? That most of his jokes were just different long-winded ways of telling jokes that have been around for decades, you know. Right, uh, right. So there is an art in... In how you deliver a joke, right? It's not just the punchline and the setup. It's and like the <clears throat> aristocrats joke, right? Everybody knows what the punchline is, but the 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 road you take to that punchline is what makes you an artist of that joke, right?
1: Yeah, that you know that's a whole that's a whole long long interesting thing, the story of uh, the aristocrats. But um, it, it's really true that that it. It's all, it's all in the, the, you know, people say, well, you know, you tell jokes. Anybody could tell jokes. I say, well, why don't you do yourself a favor and grab a couple joke books. Pick out 10 jokes or 20 jokes or 30 jokes and go on stage and tell a few. And you'll find out just how lonely it gets up there really quick. If you tell a joke and nobody laughs, mm. and then you try another joke, and nobody, it, it's it gets lonely real quick. There's an art to it. You know, there just is an art to it. You know, some people can sing a song. Some people can't, you know, it's that, it's that, it's that blunt. And I'm not bragging. I didn't learn this in two days. It took me 30 years before I went on stage with them. And now it's been 45 more years. You know, I know the jokes, I know how to tell them. And I tell, I tell the crowd, I say, listen, I know how funny these jokes are. If you don't laugh, you know, you know, just sit there. I don't care. I don't care if you left or not. I I know I know these jokes are great. I'm testing you, and that's right. the truth. It's that you know.
0: And and you know, Jackie, I got to tell you, I there's no form of comedy that I admire more than stand up. Uh, I mean, I've I write comedically. I've written for shows and stuff, but I've never had the balls to get up on stage. And to me, that t- is so frightening. You know, to 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 get on stage, like you said, and have all these people in judgment of you and to have to remember your lines and your delivery and, and to be funny in that moment. I, 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 no matter who the standup is, I will always respect them just for the, their, their, their courage in getting up on stage.
1: I, I absolutely agree. The worst comic in the world has my full respect because uh, you know, like, I don't know if it was General Patton, but there are lots of army generals and, and people like that say they can walk out in, in battle, you know, into a middle of a crossfire, crossfire, guns going off and cannons <laughs> and bombs exploding. But they would absolutely be petrified if they had to stand in front of 200 people and deliver a speech. Like they'd be too scared to do it, which I think is just <clears throat> hysterical, you know. But uh, you know what's really funny? Way back. I don't know if you know that comedy on Long Island actually started in Huntington. Are you old enough to know that?
0: Uh, I'm old enough, but I actually grew up in the Bronx. There, I'm in Huntington now, so uh, I don't remember well, that there, period.
1: There's a place on the corner of Route 110 and Main Street, 25A, upstairs. It might be called Fast Eddie's now. It's been through a billion different names, but it was called Cinnamon. In 1979, me and Richie Minervini, who wound up opening the Eastside Comedy Club, mm-hmm. started a show in the restaurant. We asked the guy, "Could we put on a comedy show on Tuesday nights? And we'll take the door, and you take the drinks." And we and that show lasted like 15 years or something like that. But it was, uh, it was I have no idea what were we just talking about. I went off on a tangent. What were you just saying?
0: Uh, I, I was just saying, we were talking about the, oh, oh, the courage oh, oh. of that.
1: So com- comedy started. So all of a sudden, comedy gets going. Now, all of a sudden, these clubs are popping up Right. in Richmond or Nashville. You know, slowly but surely, uh, these clubs are opening up. And they used to bring like three comics from New York. There was no headliner, middle, opener. There was none of that crap. It was just <clears throat> three comics that show up. And be like, well, why don't you on first? And I, I always said, well, I'll go on last because I'm so dirty and I'm so loud. And, it, you know, it just kind of, that's what you did. It was no big deal. I mean, they didn't start with the whole headliner, middle, all that crap till I was on the Stern Show and I was out of the thing. But at some point, some bright guy, say, in, for argument's sake, Richmond, Virginia, said, look, we got a, an opening M- MC and we got a middle act and we got a headliner. Why don't we get the local disc jockey to be the MC to host the show? That way he'll talk about it on the radio station. It'll give us a lot of promotion, and he'll get to be in the show. So these guys, these disc jockeys, couldn't wait. Number one, they have no sense whatsoever of what's funny, because a disc jockey, the only people they run into are people they can help. When he runs into somebody that owns the car dealership, who knows that every time he mentions him, he's going to get promotion. So he says hello. And the guy's like, oh, you're so funny because it's in their best interest. So these guys, but they're curtailed by being on the air. So these disc jockeys couldn't wait to get on stage and number one, be hysterical and number two, curse. And they would get on stage. I watched it. I don't know whether I saw it three times or 33 times. But they get up on stage to host the show. And it almost was like, good evening, ladies and fucks. It was almost <laughs> like that. And they would bomb so bad. And they wound up being the biggest fans of comedy. The biggest fans of comedy are the people that have gotten on stage and tried it. Right. If whether you stay as on as a comic or whether you fail as a comic, those are the biggest fans because they know what it's like, when you know what it can be, what a horror it can be, and then eventually you know what you know how good it can be. But those guys, like you know, the disc jockeys like one by one, they just fall by the wayside. I mean, they'd be up there, and, you know, the old crickets, like they're talking. Right. And nobody's responding. And like, well, what happened to the people that laughed at everything I said? Well, that you know, that was in a different space, man. You know, <laughs> well, so Jackie, it is funny.
0: Yeah, it definitely. Well, Jackie, let me ask you this: like, I'm sure you've known people, as I've known people, that are funny when you talk to them one on one; they can make you laugh all day long, but they could never harness that on stage.
1: What What do you think is? No, the- it's, a, it's a different. It, it's apples and oranges. You know, Rodney yeah. Dangerfield's best friend, Joe Ansis was like supposedly the funniest guy in all of manhattan and he was so petrified just the thought of going on stage making crap his pants you know mm-hmm. there's a lot of people you know and, and we all know people that are just naturally very very funny you know we and we all know people that th- think they're naturally funny you know they come from all walks of life but you know tra- translating it to stage is, is a good trick you know it's a uh, some people aren't funny and they start out and they go about it and, and get really good at it. And some people are funny to start. And, but th- it, there is no normal. You know, there's every, every different case in the world. You know, this guy had a great childhood. This guy had a rotten childhood. This guy's mother liked him too much. This guy's father beat him with a stick. You know, it's, it's who knows? Who knows right. anything, you know?
0: It, it, let me ask you this. Can you learn to be a good stand-up comedian, or do you feel it's just innate in people?
1: No, you know, number one, you can learn from scratch and become great. You can start pretty good and get terrific. When we started the show at Cinnamon in Huntington in 1979, it took Rich Jenny three tries. And, I mean, we'd let anybody on the shelf But people come up to try out. It took him three times going up for five minutes to convince us that we could trust him with, you know, 25 minutes of the show. And he wound up being, if not the funniest, one of the funniest guys. We lost him, you know, uh, years ago. But that was the he was just so funny and so prolific. And he had tons and tons and tons of material. He never, you know just the greatest writer so funny <clears throat> and meanwhile that's the guy who couldn't sell us an eggshell the first couple times so there right. can you learn or maybe we weren't sophisticated enough how to know how funny was who knows it's all you know if somebody's watching somebody perform and they're not laughing you can't tell them what's wrong with you if it's not funny to them it's not funny to them right like if somebody says oh that movie sucked You can't tell them they're wrong because if it sucked to them, it sucked to them. Maybe it doesn't suck to me. I never trust anybody. You know what I mean? Somebody says a movie stinks and then you go see it and it's the best thing in the world. You know, it just didn't hit them the same way,
0: you know? Right. Right. Uh, Jackie, one of the things I, in reading about your, your career, uh, one of the things that struck me is you seem to be a very much a do it yourself guy, right? Like I noticed I was going to mention cinnamon, you know, because I read about that—that you started the show there. Uh, The story is that at Catch a Rising Star, uh, the what was it? The the somebody bailed out at last minute, and you just jumped on stage and started telling jokes. Well, that
1: that was long before I I had no intention of ever becoming a comedian, and uh, I played in a band. We had a three-piece band, and we told dirty jokes in between songs. And it was always, do you guys play songs to make up for the jokes, or do you tell jokes to make up for the songs? And, right. But we were very small time, played in very small places, but we used to kick ass, and people just loved us. And I got to where I, I just knew every joke in the world, and I just loved jokes. I just loved them. But I always loved, without any intention of ever being a comedian, I just loved telling jokes. And I read in the New York Times about they have this place called Catch a Rising Star and you can wait online on Monday and get up and and go on stage. And I thought, wow, that's interesting. And I said to my sister's boyfriend at the time, come on, let's go in there and check this out. I didn't have any intention of getting online or anything. So we got there. We sat in the very front table. We got there really early so we could drink, you know, we're assholes. And. They start bringing the people on stage uh, one at a time. And just like I said, you tell a joke and nobody laughs. It gets lonely pretty quick, okay? Sure. So yeah. five minutes on stage is can be an eternity, okay? Right. So these people are going up there one after the other. And for the most part, they're horrible. And the audience, they, they're in New York City mostly, a lot of tourists. They paid their money, they're drinking, they're dying to laugh, okay? So the host would be up there, the MC would be up there and introduce them and then walk off stage. And as the night wore on, you know, the the MC or whatever would sometimes leave the room to go take a bite out of their hamburger or to get a drink. So me and my, my friend Archie are sitting there and somebody goes on stage and they freak out. They freak out. They just walk off stage and there's nobody on stage. So this drunken girl stumbles up on stage and tells a joke horribly. It's not Mm -hmm. funny. She tells it horribly. And the audience laughs their asses off because they're so hungry to laugh. And the MC finds his way back. It's so funny because both the MCs that night became very good long time, 40 year friends of mine, Mm -hmm. David Say and, uh, and, uh, Kelly, what's his face? I you know, I have no mind. <laughs> and and um so the MC went up, and said, all right. Thank you, honey, thank you, and escorts her off the stage. Well, five minutes later, ten minutes later, however much later, somebody else goes up on stage and you know it's so funny, memory is so funny, my memory is working overtime. Kelly Rogers. I'd never be able to make it through this if I didn't say his name, yeah. Kelly Rogers. So It's a while later, and another person's on stage, and they freak out, and they bail. Mm. And the MC is not in the room. And Archie, I can still remember, Archie said, get up there. So I went up on stage, and I told one of my all-time tried-and-true jokes that I've been telling for decades by this time. And I'm sure the whole world knows every joke, but but I didn't care. I just went up and told this joke. As I'm telling the joke, I saw the MC walk back through the velvet curtain and he was standing over there, but he didn't run up and stop me. And I finished the joke and the place went bananas.
0: Hmm.
1: And not to to mention how great it felt, but I was kind of shocked. And I went and sat back down with Archie. And as we're leaving... See, I grew grew up in East Norwich in this little town, and I'm a wise guy, little kid, and I know all these jokes, I've heard all these jokes, so I assume that everybody in America that grew up in America, of course, everybody in America knows all these jokes. Right. It turns out nobody knows these jokes. Comedians don't know these jokes. Maybe there's one guy's uncle in Oshkosh Out of 10,000 people That maybe he knows 20 jokes Nobody right. knows So uh, we're walking out And David Say Who's just the greatest guy's Old friend at this point He goes Hey yeah That was a pretty good joke You know You ever think about doing this I said come on You knew that joke He said What I never heard that joke before I said You never heard that joke before And I swear to you I swear to God On my mother The proverbial bitch The light bulb went off over my head saying, if the host at Catch a Rising Star in Manhattan hasn't heard that joke, maybe there are other people that haven't heard that joke. And like I said, it turned out nobody has heard that joke. And anybody who has heard that joke has forgotten it, long forgotten it. You know, I can't tell you how many people tell me that they get pissed off because they watch me on stage. And as I get to the end of the joke, in the middle of the while they're laughing, they realize, "Jesus Christ, I heard that before," <laughs> right. which is which is a, a testament to me. And that that was that was a turning point in my in my life when he said he hadn't heard that joke before. I realized, "Wow, maybe I'm sitting on a gold mine." And it turned out I was, and I am. You know, <laughs> and the- you know, I'd, what would have happened if I hadn't have got up there? Who knows? But because I was already telling jokes like crazy, but that was just definitely a goose, you know. But of course, then I went and got in line at Catch a Rising Star, and twice I bombed so bad. And I got to be friends with Rick Newman, who owned Catch a Rising Star, and we'd sit at the Friars Club, and he'd make me tell my stories about how bad I bombed at Catch a Rising Star. Right, you know, we weren't the height of Stern fans, fame. And, you know, and I'm, I'm a multimillionaire and the whole world knows me. So, Jackie, tell them about how, how how shitty you did at my club, you know, which is so funny. <laughs> you know, like, in you know, but those are such fond stories. Those are those are stories comics like to tell. I have a I have a podcast with Peter Bales, who actually brought me into the comic strip in Manhattan in 1979 and got me past that at his His peers were Jerry Seinfeld, Paul Reiser, Larry Miller, Dennis Wolfberg, you know, uh, uh, Carol Liefer, who was the girl that Elaine was based on. That was his whole gang. And I got passed in there. And uh, our podcast, that's what we talk to comics about. We don't say, when was your greatest show? We say, when was your worst show? What's the one that comes (laughs) up when everybody's talking about, you know, the shithole here and the shithole there, you know? Right. Like, if somebody says, Hey, you hear Rob Bartlett had a great show in Maine? Uh, hey, you hear Minervini had a great show in Kansas City? Uh, hey, here, Jim Myers really ate it big in Manhattan? Tell us tell, about Tell us about know It's Schadenfreude. You know what Schadenfreude is? That's yeah, yeah, reveling yeah. In, in the failure of others. You know?
0: yeah. I always want to was... name a
1: comedy club Schadenfreude. Schadenfreude. You
0: know? <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say one of the things that I always find hilarious, and in some ways, I understand it completely is how much you guys as comedians love to revel, like you said, in the pain of your peers. Uh, Jim Norton said this once to me, he goes, oh, if he goes, nothing makes me happier than watching one of my guys eat it on stage. You know, just, and on some level it's so cruel, right? Because you, you know how you tough that know, is.
1: You don't know how you, nothing you do in life, but especially in comedy and show business, there's, you don't realize how we all think we're so special and nobody's special <laughs> and how universal everything is. Like when we worked the Florida the Florida comic strip, there'd be like four guys on the show and be like 400 people out there and we'd be in the bar drinking and have a merry old time. And so, you know, one after one of the guys are killing, the guys are killing. And all of a sudden the waitress or somebody come in and say, hey, you know, I'm not going to say names, but, you know, hey, you know, Peter's eating it up there. You couldn't get into the showroom quick enough <laughs> right. to stand there and watch, watch the guy bomb. And, you know, I have such a great story about this. Uh, Rich Jenny. Rich Jenny and I were on the road so long ago that I was the headliner and he was the middle act. And we're working in Savannah, Georgia in 1983. Now, right now in Savannah, Georgia, it's probably around 1955. God knows what it was, must've been 1933 in 1983. Right. And we're working at, you know, to maybe 150 good old boys and their girls. And I'm in the back room, back of the room, sitting on a stool. I could see it. Like I'm there when I tell these stories <clears throat> and Jenny's on stage and I'm half drunk and I'm drinking and he's on stage and he's not doing real well. And he starts doing his Jewish material. Forget about them knowing the ins and outs of of the Jewish way of life and the Jewish people. I'm sure most of those people had never even seen a Jew. Okay. And Jenny's Italian. He's not Jewish, but he's telling, you know, Jewish, you know, flavored stuff. And it is so quiet. And I'm (laughs) sitting in the back and I always tell people, when a comedian's bombing on stage, there's a very distinct rhythm. Mm. There's the guy on stage delivering the joke. Then there's the silence that nobody laughed. And then the roar of the comedians in the back <laughs> laughing so loud because they want to make sure the guy on stage knows they heard him going into the toilet. So he's delivering joke after joke and it's eating it. And I'm screaming. And he's delivering, and he's eating. At some point he's so frustrated, he said, Do any of you people know what a bagel is? And I swear <laughs> on my mother, a guy in the corner goes, Yeah, it's a hunting dog. <laughs> <laughs> I fell off my stool. And the guy I don't know if the guy's being of course he was being funny or something, but it it was just it was just priceless. <laughs> I think Jenny told that to Leno on the Tonight Show. That's but it's like It's a very distinct thing when somebody's bombing and it's, it's, you know, one of the great things that happened was the first time, you know, you're on stage and playing music or telling jokes or something. One of the great things in my life, I think I was reading a Steve Allen book and it's the first time I ever saw the expression flop sweat, Mm. which is, you know, when you're bombing and you get that cold chill up the back of your neck I had no idea that was a universal thing. The, the fact that it had a name was like, "Whoa!" So, because I thought it was God's way of telling me, "Get the fuck off stage. You do not belong up there. What are you doing? You, you're way out of line here." And then to find out, flopsweat is a common thing. You know, whether somebody's about to forget their lines or a joke bombs. You know, because it's universal. Everybody's through, the, going through the same things, and it. it it makes, it makes a brotherhood. You know, if you're in a gang of people, 10 people, if, if half of them have experienced flop sweat, those are the people you're going to bond, bond with, right. you know. <laughs> well, I, and, I, and it's you, ugly. It's ugly. You know what? I, I, I used to t- do this in my act. I used to say, if you want to know what flop sweat's like, think about the last time you went into the bathroom and you sat down to take a dump, but you forgot to put down the ring. You forgot to put down the seat, and you went sailing past where the ring should have been, and your ass goes into the water. Think about that. What an asshole I am feeling that when it goes up. That's that was, that's kind of what it's like.
0: I've never heard it described like that, Jackie. But yeah, I guess you're right. But hey, it, it 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 it's pretty accurate, you know. Yeah, you know, you were talking about that. And it just reminded me, Kevin Hart had this great story. He said he was up on stage at Boston's. It was like one of the first times he'd gone up on stage and he was bombing so bad. And in the middle of his set, he says, out of the darkness in the back, he just sees something flying towards the stage. And it was a telephone book and it lands at his feet. And Patrice O'Neill had thrown it. And then he screams out, read that, stupid. It'll be funnier than anything you're saying. (laughs)
1: <laughs> that that you know that's so great you know in the very beginning when people were really bombing we we would write notes and the waitress would come up and hand the guy a note and it might be hey harry smith call home the babysitter just <laughs> took an axe to your kid, so they got it and they open the note and they, you know like you know you have the smallest cock in the world so, so, something just to loosen the guy up you know right so always funny always funny
0: I, I love to hear those stories um okay one they, of the, they
1: really do they really do never get old, they never get old.
0: I know. love hearing them every chance I get um one thing I will say though that I noticed is uh your joke line uh five one six nine two two wine, which has been around look ever since uh college when I was listening to stern's show i you know the the promos for uh five one six nine two two wine you know joke filthy jokes uh, you set that up on your home line back in 1979 when it wasn't as easy, right? Uh, but I was thinking about how much that led you. Like, what? A, what an ingenious move! Because that you know, led it, to... it,
1: it was it was ingenious, but it really wasn't. Me and Richie hmm. started a show at Cinnamon in Huntington. We're gonna have it's the first comedy show on Long Island. There was Richard M. Dixon's White House Inn, but he had variety acts. He wouldn't pay anybody. So we're going to start an actual show where you charge people to get in and pay the comedians. But we're lucky. I had my amplifier and speakers. We didn't have a penny. I said, how are we going to get? I got the bright idea. I'll get a phone line. I'll put jokes on the phone. And in between the jokes, I'll say where we're working, which is as old as time itself. It's like a radio show, you hear content, then you hear ads. And then you hear content. A TV show, you are watching TV, and they then there's an ad. So this is a joke. This is calling a joke machine. I call it an answering machine. You're hearing jokes. And oh, tonight we'll be at Cinnamon in Huntington. Here's the number. And so I figured I'll, I'll just get a phone line, and that's how we'll advertise it. And it grew. It grew epically. To I should write a book just about that. And when Rick Dees got a hold of it in California, he's the guy who named me the joke man because he was using the jokes without me knowing it. But then the jokes got so dirty because the world, you're not old enough, but the world changed in 1979 when all of a sudden there's HBO and you're sitting in the room and your mother is sitting next to you and there's bare tits on the TV screen. It's a different world. So things got looser. But, it, but it, the way things come full circle is, a couple of weeks ago they shot the grand finale. I mean, the season finale of Blue Bloods, which I didn't know anything about. But it's a it's a cop show on CBS at ten o'clock on Friday. I guess it's their flagship show, and it's been around for twelve years. And the main guy is Tom Selleck. Tom Selleck, yeah. Meanwhile, in Los Angeles in nineteen eighty. When Rick Dees got a hold of my dirty joke line, which is 516-922-9463, which spells out wine, he used to tell his audience that that was Tom Selleck's home phone number, and he would give it out. <laughs> and people are stupid enough, they're just stupid enough to try it, and that's... I can't tell you, it, my phone line got to where I had 10 lines and we're getting between 5, 10, 15,000 calls a day. I mean, they just went and went and went and went. And and it was, talk about viral. This is viral before such thing. I would right. put a phone in, in a Y connector. And so when it rang, instead of the thing going off, I'd answer, say, don't hang up, don't hang up. This is Jackie, this is me live. Where are you calling from? Most of the time, people would hang up because they're calling from work. And they thought they were getting caught by the boss. But people would say, I'm calling from Alaska. I'm calling from Mexico. I'm calling from Florida. Almost all of them had never heard of me, hadn't even heard of nine two two Wine, except on the little answering machine. Just the number got passed around and passed around. They didn't know I was a comedian. They didn't know who I was. All they knew was if they dialed, they're going to hear dirty jokes. And they tell everybody. And it, that, was, that was probably one of the first instances of something going incredibly viral before, I don't even know if the word was coined yet.
0: Right. You know, and, but it was
1: it was so fun. And then people, what I love is somebody comes up to me and says, you know, I used to call you lying 30 years ago with the jokes. And I say, yeah, we'll go ahead and dial it right now. And they <laughs> dial it and they freak out because I still got it going. You know, why not? You know,
0: why not? And, and I was going to say the whole Rick D story really, is, you know, he discovered you through the joke line, gave you the name, the joke man. Now you're, uh, did you end up writing for the Rick D show? <clears throat> well, what happened was the jokes got so dirty. He
1: called me up and he said, I've been using your jokes, but I can't use them. Will you do some jokes specifically for me? So I would do 20 little, uh, one minute or minute and a half joke things for his show. And, uh, he He'd Pay me X amount per month. I, you know, I don't know. It was ten dollars right. or five hundred dollars, whatever it would have been in nineteen eighty. Right. Whatever it was, I'm sure it was half or one third as much as it should have been. Right. But I was thrilled to be honest because I was not only on his radio show, he also was one of those guys that had a thing called the weekly top forty, where he'd put the songs of the week, a countdown number. Hey, yeah, coming in at number thirty-eight with a bullet. Blah blah blah. And in between some of the songs, he'd put my jokes. And they actually put them on wax, like a wax LP and oh. mail it to Chicago, mail it to Z 100 in New York, mail it to Nashville. And on fr- Saturday or Sunday, when the normal shows aren't playing, they they take up two hours with the Rick D's top 40. And it was syndicated and people pay a lot of money for it. And people listen to it. And a million people heard me that way. You know, so the exposure was, you know, it was ridiculous. You know, of course, nobody knew who I was, was you know, it, it it was a little bit of peeing in the wind, but you're nobody till you're somebody, you right. know. Oh, did I hear you on? You know, did I hear you? Did you know? I, I'm I. You know, my uh, future ex-wife worked at Kingdom Sound, which was a great recording studio in Syasa. and everybody recorded there, and they also were big Coke den. So they were they were making great records, but they also dealing Coke, which was not right. that odd for that those years, and. Everybody used to go there to get high and everybody worked there. Everybody played there. And Nancy was a very good friend of mine. And when I had somebody come to town, it was a friend that wanted cocaine. I didn't do cocaine, but if I needed it, I'd go over there and get some from them. And uh, I was sitting on the Stern show one day and Phoebe Snow came in. Do you know who she is or was? Singer, right? The singer, Phoebe Snow. Yeah. So Phoebe Snow came in there and she's kind of looking at me. And after about 10 minutes, she goes, I know who you are. You're the guy with those stupid, filthy records. <laughs> I used to listen to your records with the guys from the Billy Joel band when we were on break. <laughs> they used to sit there and do coke and listen to my stupid, because Nancy was a big fan. So she, they had all my records, you know, and I'd give her a stack and she'd give them out to the musicians, you know? So, I mean, I've been hustling for so long. I didn't even know how to stop, you know?
0: Well, that's the thing. I noticed that in your career, you're almost like a punk rocker in the sense that you did everything for yourself. I was going to say, all your uh, what was it your first three comedy albums? You you self produced. You 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 did it all yourself, your own equipment and everything. You ended up mailing uh, what was it three of them to Howard Howard, and that's how you got introduced what, what, to me. What
1: happened was I worked I worked in a recording studio, um, and the way that happened was odd. I you know I worked I played in a band and we had a great song called the Pot Song, and the audience used to go nuts. And the owner of the, of the club decided he wanted to help us and make a record out of it. And there was another guy in another band that played at this club who had a recording studio. So we went in and recorded the pot song and a love song at this recording studio. And these guys really liked me. And they said, we really like you. Why don't you come work for us? I said, all right. They paid me nothing practically but I'm learning the art of recording. I was basically the janitor or the studio manager, but great fun. And so I learned the process that any idiot can have a record. All you need is a master tape, a few pictures, a few dollars, and you mail it to Nashville and you get back your comedy record. Now, nobody knows that, but I know that. So we start doing comedy And I had always recorded my bands. I always had two microphones hanging up and I'd record into a cassette recorder, a decent cassette recorder. And it it was clear as a bell. One night I said to my girlfriend, I said, you know, they laughed every time I opened my mouth, I should make a record. And she said, so make a record. And I borrowed a hundred bucks from 15 different people. And I took the cassettes of the shows that we're doing at cinnamon and bumped them up onto a reel-to-reel tape recorder and took the best of everything, chopped it up with a razor blade like old school with the splicing tape and blah, blah, blah. And I had two 20-minute sides. And I took my class picture in eighth grade where I'm giving the finger. (laughs) And a few pictures, and and I just sent the whole thing to Nashville. And I swear to you, John, when I went to Port Authority to pick up my first thousand records it was like picking up quintuplets (laughs) i was bursting bursting with pride and i had these records and man if everybody didn't break my balls you wouldn't believe it so i'm the first guy that's doing anything even the neighborhood of merch which years later it was years before anybody was doing that because it was years before people could make their own cds so i'm at the door and after my gig people, oh, you were great. Oh, you want to buy a record, $5? And I'm autographing the record, and people are thrilled. And the guys are breaking my balls. Like, look at him. What a hustler. What an idiot. Who wants that crap? And then one day, they're like, wait a minute. We made 50 bucks each, and he made an extra 75 selling his stupid. Stuc- Maybe he's not that stupid. You're right. <laughs> so meanwhile, I'd send them to everybody. And the, st- the amount of stories about it are so great. And then I came out with a second record. And then I sent them to everybody. And then by 1982, I had three records and Nancy is now working for me. And we would put the three records and the three cassettes that were matching and all of our promotion and mail them to whoever we could. And I mean, it would, it would cast a wide umbrella. You know, if a taxi driver says, hey, did I see you at a comedy club? Oh, give me your address. Let me send you. And we sent so much crap. And then I worked in the in Washington, D.C. And they told me about a guy that just got fired from the radio at D.C. 101, but he's going to NBC. Why don't you look him up? And so me and Nancy just put Howard Stern, Kara, WNBC, Rockefeller Plaza, and mailed it, just like we had mailed three or four hundred right. sets of stuff like that, not knowing what's going to happen. Who, who I, I never heard of the guy. I don't know anything about radio. I'm a hippie. I listen to you know CBS 101. <laughs> And a couple of months later, Nancy calls me, you know, I'm upstairs in my mother's attic. That's my, that's my office. And she says, that guy, Howard Stern called up. He wants you to call him. I called him. He said, we got your records. You're really funny. Why don't you come in and hang out on, on the air today? So I went in and hung out on the air at the end of the day. He said, you're really funny. Why don't you come back next week? So I came back once a week for three years for free and slowly inserted myself into the mix and, You know, not to be a complete bore, but the rest is history, which it really is. You know,
0: that's so fascinating to me because the to think about the odds of all these things falling in place for you, but really,
1: it's it's absolutely absurd. But the thing is, you don't know about all the dead ends. You know what I mean? When I always tell people, if you take my life and connect the dots backwards, it looks like I absolutely knew where i was going knew where i was heading and knew what i was doing when in reality i had no idea when I, when my band broke up i decided to do comedy i realized if i stopped right then i had nothing to show for the first 30 years of my life except for a diploma that's got pot stains on it i had nothing going nothing going but if you just trudge on you know you hit enough brick walls you you know it took right. me so many tries to get my first joke book printed in 1979. I think it was, I've been trying to get a joke book printed. I can't tell you how many times I got rejected. And finally the guy practically wrote to me and said, all right, Jackie, enough already. We'll print (laughs) your fucking book. Just leave me alone. You know?
0: Right. Right.
1: So, and, but the minute that happens, you forget about all the times that they sent it up, sent it back and said, put this up, your nose." you know what I mean? So, you know, it's, it's, it really makes for a fun ride, it makes for a fun tale,
0: you know. It, it absolutely does. Uh, I was going to ask you, as your relationship, you said you would go into Stern once a week for a couple of years uh, unpaid, but you were getting exposure. You were, you were uh, being seen and heard. Uh, who, how does it evolve that you get hired full-time? Was it you go to Howard and say, hey, it's about time? Or does Howard no, approach uh, you? No, what happened,
1: or... what happened was, uh, Nancy and I were running Governors Comedy Shop on Long Island. So it was worth it to me to go in there and sit with them because we were promoting Governors Comedy Shop, promoting my joke line. And then I finagled a deal with the guys from Rascals Comedy Club in Jersey. I said, listen, let me just say your name on the air. I'm on every Tuesday. I'll say the name that I'm going to be at Rascals tonight. You could pay me a couple hundred bucks. It's even if nobody shows up, it's worth it to get your name on radio. So I kind of made it pay for itself a little bit, you know, for gas and toll, blah, right. blah, blah, blah. But over the course of three years, I started slowly but surely passing him little notes and little ideas and, and a little material for this guy and material for this character. <clears throat> and then he got fired. And then he got rehired at K-Rock. And I was in once a, once a week again. So we're working, but they actually had a place for me to sit and write, which was weird because it had gotten to the point where I was passing some stuff pretty regularly and writing on a full, you know, eight and a half by 11 piece of paper with a magic marker and actually putting it up for him to talk. I mean, for him to read and that was working. So then they expanded me to two days a week and then they expanded me. The, you know he, according to Howard, yeah, I gotta go to Tom and try and get more money. And meanwhile, I was making sc- scrap- you know' I making shit, <clears throat> but I went from two week- two days a week to three days a week to four day i I think it was about two months may- maybe three months I know I was full time before we went on in Philadelphia syndicate, and that was in August, so uh I think we went on to mornings. I think in February of 86, but whatever it was, it it pretty quickly, because the show was a lot funnier when I was there feeding them joke after joke, after joke. It was like, it was like night and day, you know, not to blow my own horn, but it really was, or else I wouldn't have been there. And then by August of 1986, I was, you know, I was there five days a week until 2001.
0: Yeah. And I think a lot of people don't realize that between you and Fred, Like, you're the guys who were essentially deciding what Howard would say, right? Like, I mean... Yeah, you know, some people knew and some
1: people didn't know. And it's amazing who knows and who didn't know. That's why I can't wait. My documentary is coming out called Joke Man. And it's interesting to hear people talk about it. Like Anthony Camilla from Opie and Anthony said, when you know, we'd listen to Howard before we had a radio show. We said, this is the funniest guy I can't believe this guy is lightning fast. And then they find out that I had a lot to do with it. And also, Fred had been with him for years, but he had never passed them notes. He used to write the bits and, and do some of the pre-recorded. But then Fred started giving me little scraps of paper. And one day I gave him a pile of regular paper. I said, <laughs> Fred, write nice and big because if you hand me an idea, by the time I rewrite it and put it up there, the moment's lost. The moment's we're gone, moving yeah. a million miles an hour. So he between me and Fred, we, um, you know, we and we had, Howard did, wasn't just funnier. He had three different senses of humor. He had his sense of humor, which is very broad and very wild. And I'm a punchline type guy. And Fred is from Pluto. So these three different, <laughs> com, these three different senses of humor just made Howard like, a, you know, like a Medusa of comedy. You know, it's just yeah. amazing.
0: You know. And, and that's a great point because I never really thought of it in that particular manner. Like I always knew that you and Fred were feeding him lines. And I think if you watch the E show, like really, really nerdy, the way I did, you would see on occasion, like your hand sort of, you know, um, or his attention. Yeah, you know, some to you.
1: people could piece that together. You know, some people were astute enough that they would actually hear the squeak of the magic marker. So if you have a magic marker, I'm sure you know this. If you open up a magic marker for the first a couple of minutes you're writing, it's absolutely silent. But once yeah. you've used it for a few seconds, it starts to squeak. Right. Because the alcohol gets lower. And you know people say that they would hear the squeak and hear the pause and then hear the joke and oh, then hear oh, the yeah. laughs, you know, and and once you hear it, you really can't unhear it. Right. So it's right. really funny. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's yeah. Really so great. it's really great that you guys had that. But especially what you pointed out, like it's not just that you were feeding them lines it's the fact that you now had essentially three different types of humor rolled into one, which I think yeah, I it, never really it, thought it of. Until mean,
1: well, it, it, it's like, we were moving a million miles an hour, but it's not like if Howard had more time, he would have thought of the things that we wrote. Cause we had different takes on everything. So right. it, it, it was, you know, and he was so brilliant. I mean, he, he could switch it around. And if it was an insult to Gary, he could make it about Fred. If I wrote something about him, he could make it about me. You know, sometimes if, if you know, we're going so fast, we miss missed the moment. And if it was a funny enough line, he'd circle the conversations around to get back to hit the joke. I mean, the reason it worked with me, I mean, me and Fred are two very, very funny guys, but it could not work with anybody but him because he was so I mean, it was seamless. The fact that people listen for years and years and years, some people listen to every second of every show and didn't even know that we were writing stuff because I was, a, I, I, you know, I'm this little drunken man who's just giggling and having a time of a, a lifetime and people are breaking my balls. That almost was enough to justify me being there on the show. People right. had no idea that, you know, I was supplying the content. You know, that was the furthest thing from anybody. You know, who's Jackie? Oh, he's the little guy that laughs in the background of the Stern show. You know, right? I mean, right. Yeah, and, and that's why I wound up off the show because I was, I was doing a lot. You know, like, you know, sh- share the wealth. I mean, he was sharing, but he could have shared more. You
0: know. Now so. that's a that's a point that I think I, I'm. I was never 100 percent sure this. If you can answer, great. Like, it was well known. You left the show. You held out a couple of times to renegotiate, which is, you know, that's part of business. But were you negotiating with the station or were you negotiating with Howard? Like who, where did this flow Nobody from?
1: Nobody will ever know. You know, there was hmm. Mel Carmisen who owned, who, who owned Infinity Broadcasting. There was Don Buckwald, Howard's agent. And there was Howard. And there was Tom Chisano, the general manager. And. It was, I, you, I never knew who I'm talking to. I finally got, the, you know, they said, oh, Jackie, you're an asshole. You should have representation. And the minute I got representation, they instantly hated him because, of course, they hated him because he's the guy in there trying to get more money for me, you know. So it was, uh, it's like, you know, they'd slide their answer out under the door and who who answered the question you didn't know, you know, it was, it was. It was it was a regime. It really was a regime. As wonderful as everything was, it was I, I didn't think it was fair. And uh, but that, you know, if you ask your boss for a raise, you have every right to ask for a raise, and he has every right to say no. It's that simple. I asked for more than they wanted to pay me. So I took my football one home. You know, the, you would have thought that I, you know, I stole one of Howard's children, the way was, <laughs> the listeners took it because you know, no, I was I... making a lot of money, just not right. relative to what was coming in, you know?
0: Right. Well, you know, I think most people don't understand that if they're not in that position, right? Like they'll say, oh, Jackie's making X. He should be happy with X. You know, why? That's just because X seems like a well, lot to you, the Stern right? I mean...
1: fans, the Stern fans are so rabid that to them, how lucky was I to, to be able to sit in the studio on that show you know, because, right. you know, there'd be a line out the back door. People would do it for nothing, you know. So,
0: but at I don't find
1: the... fault with them, you know, you know. Oh,
0: I mean, you can't really. That, In a way, that's a that's a testament to how much they loved you guys in some way. Because if they can view it as betrayal, that only comes out of love to begin with, right? Uh, right. At the end of the day, did you feel you, do you regret, like, uh, that whole situation? The way it turned no, out? The you, way it played you, out? You, you, You can't. You can't.
1: You can't negotiate unless you're, you're ready to walk away. If, if you're not going to walk away. Um, right. I, I had second thoughts about it like a month or two later. But it's, it's hard to relate to people. It, not because of the money and not because of walking down the street and having people say, hello, Jackie, or getting a better table in a restaurant. When I left the show, it never dawned on me That for years, I've been sitting in this room with these really intelligent, really, really funny people and laughing for four or five hours. I guess in my mind, I thought, well, I'll just go laugh for the different group of people. I mean, I never took it that far. You don't realize it was such an unnatural situation. And I really had withdrawals from that. But it wasn't like I thought I did the wrong thing negotiation wise or asked for too much money, blah, blah, blah but I didn't realize how much I was going to miss the actual, you know, I guess you'd have to call it work, but not, not the work, the, you know, there was such yeah. a satisfaction of, you know, just the fact we were kicking everybody's ass every morning, but that was the reason why, why, you know, I did not ask for enough money to break anybody's back. I just asked for more, you know? And so the, the debate rages to this day, but right. uh you know, do I look at my house and say, oh, wow, maybe I have a swimming pool here and a yacht? There. I'm, you know, I jump in the Long Island Sound and I eat a hamburger. I'm I'm fine. So, you know what you're I mean? You're fine. I don't, give I, a, I don't give a fuck.
0: But I do understand missing it. I mean, just a, I had a radio show at Sirius for a year. Uh, they didn't renew the contract. And I said, "Ah, it's OK, I'll I'll get another one. That time when you're not talking to people over the air, I, I was going through withdrawals. You would think I... You know that I was an ad like a crack addict who had just been cut off. You know the, the the not having the ability to get on that microphone and to talk to these thousands of people or whatever on, on a regular basis, more so than any money or promo, that's what hit me the right. hardest. To your point, that was right, the thing right.
1: that yeah, I was so. Just- so I didn't know you were a broadcast. So so you absolutely know what I'm talking about. But I yeah. had to fall back. You know, I'm still doing I'm doing a comic and I'm getting up on stage and I'm telling my jokes and blah blah blah. So. It wasn't like I was sitting with my thumb, you know, but right. I went through a very weird time because uh, Nancy and I got divorced and people like, oh, she left you because you left the show. And, I, you know, me and her had kind of broken up for years, but we're still living together because it was time to get a divorce. And I knew, you know, I had way too much free time. So I quit drinking. I mean, the Stern show probably saved my life because when you are getting up at four in the morning, you cannot drink that much, even though I managed to. So I moved into a house by myself and got divorced and left the show and quit drinking, which are four major life changes. But, you know, then one day I woke up and said, wait, you live on the beach. You got plenty of money. You're a stand-up comic. Your life is perfect. Shut up. You know what I
0: mean? you're not that bad off, right?
1: <laughs> but yeah, but that was not, that was not a one-time sentence. That sentence probably took me four months to right. beat into my
0: head, you know? Right. Yeah. No, of course. Of course. Okay. Uh, was there ever a time on the show where you said, man, this bit is awesome. I, this is the best bit I've ever written, but it never made the air.
1: No, no, because we, we, we all work together, mm. you know, uh, we wrote the bits together. Like, like you I mean, did I ever come in with an idea or something? And was there something you know, that
0: you were really strong, you thought was strong, but you it got rejected? No, no,
1: because they it didn't get rejected. You know, mm. like if it was a song, me and Fred worked on it together. There was one time where I, I wrote a song It was, it was so horrible. And uh, in fact, all I could talk about was, look at this, Jackie did something on his own. He never does extra work. And it was the day that Frank Sinatra had just passed away. So I wrote a parody to the song, My Way. But the parody was about Robin getting banged in the ass. <laughs> and I came in, I said, Howard, you got to let me sing this song, which I had never done. And he looked at it. And of course he made fun of me and I sang the song. And it, it's, I, I think it's still one of the funniest things on, on the show ever. But, um, but I was forceful about that, but I don't think I, no, I, like I, I never came in, I never wrote a script and said, let's do this. You know, if I would, you know, we'd run an idea past Howard or a couple ideas and he said, all right, let's do this. Then me and Fred and him would sit down and we'd write the bit as we went along, you know, mm-hmm. now, I don't mean on the air, but we sit and write the bit and then pre-record mm-hmm. it, you know? So just by design, there was no, there was no waste, you know?
0: Okay. Okay. Now, people who don't work in radio sometimes don't understand this, but a lot of times the things you hear on the radio, because it's such a personal medium, we assume that those people are, are you know, what's said on the radio must be 100% gospel truth. Like for years, people think I weigh four or 500 pounds when they see me, because for years, uh, the Opie and Anthony crew guys would come in and say, here's big fat John here, you know, he, here he comes rumbling down the hall. You go with it, you know. But then when they'd see me out on the street, someone would recognize my voice or something. They'd be like, oh, you're a big fat guy. You know, it's so like, no, I'm not. Can't you no, see well, your well type class- of thing?
1: It's, the cl- it's the classic Dean Martin's a drunk boy. He did wind up right. being a drunk. And Jack Benny's cheap, and he was the most generous guy in the world. I mean, the whole world was convinced that I was an angry little man. And I've, there's not a least ang- less angry person in the world. But if you tell something they're, somebody they're angry, and they go, no, I'm not. All of a sudden, Randy. Yeah. And well, now, to this, day, it's to this day, the whole world thinks I'm a cheapskate. I mean, I have people <laughs> that come up to me in bars and say, you want me to buy a Heineken, Jackie? Because I know you'd never buy me one, you cheap bastard. <laughs> and Meanwhile, my friends would listen and say, what's he talking about? You're the most generous guy in the world. I say, yeah, but he knows that that pushes my buttons. You know." So I'll, but on a case like the Stern show, it's so close to real, everything. You know, I always always use the analogy that Bozo does a show. And when he's done with his show, he takes off his red wig and takes off his big red nose and takes off his big shoes. And he goes out and he's back to being Harry Smith. But Howard didn't have a big red nose and a wig. So he was a guy and we were all just people. So, there was a very fine line where the where the bull crap started and ended. And for the most part it was pretty much on the money. And that's and that's why and that's why the show worked so well cuz people could tell that. You know, I came in one time way in the beginning, we just going in the mornings. <clears throat> and I said, "Howard, I got to tell this on the air." I said, "I got to tell you this." I had the most incredible sex dream about Robin last night. It was unbelievable." And I said, "Really?" I said, "Yeah, I'm not making this up for the air." I mean, Wow, it was graphic and crazy. She's like, ooh, 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 ooh. <laughs> and then a couple of days later, a couple of weeks later, this this goes. This is a testament to how everybody was all for one on the show. She said, Howard, I have to tell you, I had a sex dream about Jackie List, and she wasn't making. <laughs> she had had a wild sex dream about me, and it was a whole, you know, because I had planted that seed, which is, you know, there was no reason for her to share that. You know, right. except it was it was good for the radio and it was real because she certainly wasn't going to cough that up if it wasn't real. You know, so yeah. that was, you know, well,
0: I was going to say, were there any of those relationships that um, weren't what they seemed like? I know every so often they played it off like you and Robin had issues with each other or or, or something no, I like tell that, people
1: but... she was she was she was like when you're a kid. How would you say, oh, Yo, you're so in love with her. You're so in love with her. And I couldn't say that, but she was like the fat girl in your class that you were good friends with. You know, it was that simple. And she would annoy me sometimes, you know, and we go at it. But, you know, she didn't like – it wasn't she didn't like me. It just – after I left the show, I, she said if Howard had me back on the show that she would leave. People told me she said that time and time again. Because the minute I left that show, Gary, Fred and Robin were on vacation because I was the one that broke their balls. I made fun of Robert and I made fun of Fred or made fun of Gary. I didn't especially do all of it, but I would get I would start the start, start it in motion, you know, make fun of Gary's ass or make make fun of Robin making a mistake in the news. And I would, you know, I would put sand in the gears, which made the show great. That was the whole idea, the whole thing. But there was no real animosity. I mean, me and her even went out to lunch like five or ten years ago or something. You know, she's, you know, we were we were all pals. You know.
0: Okay. No, that's that's why I was asking because, like I said, sometimes.
1: I mean, you might call her tomorrow, and she might say that fucking asshole, Jackie. So I, <laughs>
0: I I don't. I, don't, I yeah. can't. You know, speak for anybody else. <laughs> yeah, from your perspective is the only thing you could say, right? Um right. one last question about that is I have to ask you, I don't know if you're aware, but nowadays there's a cottage industry that has grown around shitting on stuttering John. It seems like everybody or a lot of people from the Stern. Show, I'm not discussing surely... it.
1: I'm not discussing you're it. You're
0: not discussing that. Okay, fair not, enough.
1: Not even a little bit. I have my reasons.
0: Fair enough. Fair enough. We could skip it then. Uh all right. So Let's. Uh, I've been enjoying our talk until now, so let's wrap this up a little bit. I uh, don't
1: get me wrong. I I love Shuli. I love all those guys. Yeah. I just don't. You know, shit slinging. Okay. I, I was a shit slinger when I was on the show. I don't do that. You know,
0: that's fair enough. I I, I respect you saying that, and and that's perfectly fine. Um, I mean, now... John
1: John Suttering John is in my documentary, and mm-hmm. he's great in it. And uh, I'll say it again. It's joke man. It's an yeah, IKA gonna... collective. Feature-length feature documentary, and it's going to be on Apple TV, iTunes, and Amazon Prime starting July 18th. And everybody, 18th. please, please watch it. You yeah. know, I'd love to know what you think of it. I think you'd really like it.
0: I, I'm sure I will because I'm a big fan. Uh, July 18th, uh, Joke Man on Apple TV, Amazon, and iTunes. And, of course, I could not let this go by if I didn't ask you to indulge me in a round of Stump the Joke Man. <clears throat> you can give it a shot. Okay. I'm going to start out. Now, th- does this work that I start telling the joke and when you know it, you're going to jump well, in?
1: Well, you know, there's been different. The way it started years ago was, uh, I would say to people in the crowd, um, at the end of my show, I said, give me a subject. I'll give you a joke. And they give me a subject and I tell them a joke. And if it was too, too narrow a subject, I would open the umbrella and make it bigger. You know, like if somebody said garlic bread, they go, okay, here's a joke about Italian food. You know, and then when I got to the Stern Show, he said, "You know, we should make it two line jokes," and that's what we did. And then I, me and Fred, would come up jokes, with jokes for Fred to call in with, because the listeners, all they called in was horrible black jokes and horrible, you know, <laughs> stuff right. we couldn't do on the air. Uh, but what I do in, in in my shows is, girls come on stage and the guys stand up and they give me the first line of a two line joke, and I tell them the answer. But nowadays, you know, the whole world comes up to me in a bar and says, I have a joke for you. And I actually started doing this in 1975. I already knew the jokes back then. And, you know, if you're telling jokes in a band, everybody's got a joke for you. So I'd be at the bar on my break and somebody come up and say, I got one you haven't heard. And I said, <laughs> all right, I'm going to count down from 10. And when I get to zero, if I haven't told you the to punchline, I'll buy you a beer. I never bought anybody a beer. If somebody started telling a joke about a cowboy and an Indian going down the river in a canoe, after two sentences, I'd be, oh, this is the one about the nun and the priest in Alaska, because they all, all roads lead to Rome. And so now people come up and say, I got a joke for you. And I'll say, all right, but if you, I'll stop you, you know, because that's my job, even if it's a girl. You know, the definition of a gentleman is somebody who hasn't heard the story. You let people tell this story. Oh, that's very nice. But I can't do that because somebody tells me a joke. And I ain't mean, like, I haven't heard it. They're like for the rest of their lives. What's the big deal with this Jackie, the joke, man. He didn't know why the chicken crossed the road, you know? <laughs> so I have to cut. Pe- and it freaks people out when they say two words. And I, and I say, that just happened yesterday at lunch with my friend Nada and her friend Brian, who's, who's a comedian. I never found out his last name. He said, I got one to try on you. I'll never think of what it was, but he, he started it. And I, Told him the punchline before he got two words out, and like his jaw dropped. Now I was at the Cannes Film Festival, at a big fancy party, and Michael Madsen, the character actor, right, he came up to me. He said, "All right, Mr. Joke Man, here's one you haven't heard." And he said two words. I told him the punchline. His jaw dropped. And I said, "All right, here's a joke about the same subject." I told him a joke about the same subject. And he dropped to his knees in the in the middle of this party, going, <laughs> "I hail you, I hail you, I hail you." So, you know, very often somebody starts a joke, I have to I have to correct it, you know, before they finish it. So, sure. yeah, do anything you want. Now, after that whole build
0: up, you tell right. me joke I never heard before. No, you're probably you probably heard of it. Okay, a uh, young man is walking down the sidewalk. He sees a line of dudes uh, lined up in front of a building. He goes to the guy at the end of the line and he says, "Hey, what's this line for?" And he goes, oh, haven't you heard? They're giving away free blowjobs inside. So the guy says, oh, that sounds like a good deal. So he stands on line. A couple of minutes go by. This old lady comes by on her uh, with her cane. And she says, excuse me, young man, but why are you all waiting on line here? We're waiting in line for our lollipops. <laughs> there you go. Yep. As long as I keep... keep making them, I'm going to keep sucking on
1: them. That was on my <laughs> first LP. My very All right. first LP. <laughs>
0: That's okay. a great joke.
1: That's it a is a great, great
0: joke. joke. And Jackie, of course, as I fully expected, you have not, I was not able to stump the Joke Man. And in some ways, I wear that as a badge of honor that I was not able to and do that. You email
1: me your street address and your shirt size, and I will send you an I Stump Jackie the Joke Man t shirt. And you could tell people that it was a consolation prize.
0: Thank you so much, Jackie. I will definitely take you up on that. And uh, since we're practically neighbors, I'm sure I'll come out and run into you if you're doing any gigs out on the island. Uh, i certainly come out and catch you there. You live in Everyone. Huntington still? Yeah, I'm in Huntington right now. Yeah. <coughs> I love it. So, that. yeah. Yeah, it's a nice place. Recently moved out here, but I'm, uh, I'm kind of happy out here. Everyone, please, as we mentioned before, July 18th, IKA uh, production documentary, Joke man.
1: I, it's I. It's IKA Collective. It's my old. I had a show on Sirius for uh, like uh, eight years called the uh, Jackie's Joke Hunt, Joke Hunt, and he was my yeah. co-host, Ian Carr. The IKA oh, okay. Collective.
0: And, IKA uh, Collective. The title is Joke Man, and it'll be on Apple TV, Amazon, and iTunes. On, yeah. So uh, far, so far, and so we're, far, we're adding more every day. Yeah. So everybody, please go check it out. Support our friend, Jackie, the joke, man. He is one of the funniest people ever. He's still going strong at the young age of 75. And like he said, Oh, Oh. oh. but listen, Jackie, I can't thank you enough for doing this. This is a dream come true for me. Uh, In many ways, you, Howard, uh, guys from that show, Opie and Anthony, all you guys, all that talk radio guys from the heyday, or what inspired me to get into radio, so I, I want to thank you personally for that, and just in general, just for being a good guy and uh, joining us on the show.
1: My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Uh, one more thing, if you guys uh, want a personalized video, I'm on Cameo.com slash Jackie Martling, and all my gigs are on JokeLand.com, and I'm you know I'm still doing them here, there, and everywhere. So you know.
0: And we'll definitely have that on the podcast for people to remind them. And he's also on Twitter every day at 4.20. Wink, there's a new joke uh, on Twitter. No, I stopped
1: doing that. Oh, you stopped doing that. Well, there's still lots of jokes there. But when I found out that my uh, documentary was going to come out, I decided to wait until it was available because then I can give people a joke and tell them where to get my documentary so then when they – because those jokes go viral. You put a joke on Twitter, right. everybody sends it to everybody. So I wanted it to do me some good. for you know, for 15 years, I was putting a different joke on there every day for nothing except, oh, Jackie said, Uncle Vinny's Comedy Club in Point Pleasant. Now it's a lot different. Now, you know, it can help me go viral. There's every, you know, even the people that don't like me are going to sign up for this documentary because they they'll watch it just to prove to themselves they don't like me, and, and unfortunately, right. they're going to come out of it liking me. There's going to be stuff they never heard before, and it's going to shock the piss out of them, you know. Uh, so we'll uh, see what know, happens.
0: I can't imagine anyone not liking you, Jackie. Uh, you seem like such an uh, affable fellow. And listen, everyone, like we said, go check out Joke Man, July 18th, Amazon, Apple TV, iTunes, and probably to a lot of other places. Also go to jokeland.com to get the latest on our friend Jackie. Jackie, thank you once again. Thank and you, anytime. We'll talk to-